0: Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat, I'm a journalist. And this week, we are discussing a recent forecast by demographer Clint Laurent from Global Demographics. He's given his predictions for the future of the world's economy and population to the year 2030 and beyond. Keith, could you give us a quick history lesson on the subject first off? What have we seen in our recent history when it comes to countries and growth?
1: Yes, indeed. So, population is always a major consideration when you're talking about economic growth because, generally speaking, you need to have a lot of younger people educated, in the workforce, working hard. And there's been a long history to all of this. So it goes back a couple of hundred years to Thomas Malthus, who was an Anglican clergyman, who said, we're all doomed. Uh, Population will grow faster than we can supply extra food. Mm -hmm. And that's the Malthus point of view. And you often hear people refer to a Malthusian point of view when it comes to population. We're all doomed. (laughs) Uh, Now, luckily in the 19th century, Malthus was proved wrong because the Europeans explored the world, found huge areas for growing food in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United States. And so the global famine that he was forecasting disappeared. He was not in a position as as an Anglican clergyman to talk about birth control or anything like that. He did say that there should be what he politely referred to as natural restraint. Mm -hmm. In other words, you shouldn't have any sex. (laughs) Uh, But he he couldn't go any further than that. So he just simply said, we're all doomed. We're not going to be able to grow enough food. Population continues to grow. And this has been a point of view which has continued to bubble along within the environment movement. So the environment movement underwent a, a revival in the 60s and 70s and population became a major issue. So you had... Paul Ehrlich, uh, an American academic, referring to the population bomb, Mm -hmm. this idea that, in fact, we would, again, have too many people with too little food, too little land. And that's also picked up by certain Australians who talk about the fact that we should have zero migration into this country, Mm. that our fragile environment can't withstand the population growth which is being projected up to 50 million. You know, there there are certain well-known conservationists who are saying, well, we've got to get the population down under 20 million. Wow. So that's one strand of the debate. I've noticed in recent years the debate has started to change, and that's what attracted me to this material from uh, Global Demographics, a UK think tank, because it is quite clear that the population bomb has now been diffused, and instead we've got people who are now saying we don't have enough people, Mm. In this country, which is England, or Russia, or China, and that we really ought to be encouraging more migration to make up for the labor shortage. Now, I might just say, although we perhaps needn't explore this, there's a third point of view which says, well, don't worry, computers will do all that work. It's interesting that in Japan, which is the first one into this looming population crisis, that the problem is being solved by robotics. So Japan has more robotics than any other country in the world. Wow. So they don't want to import labour from elsewhere in Asia, so they're just inventing robots to do a lot of the work. It's one solution. That is that is certainly one solution. Yeah. But, of course, for poorer countries, that probably isn't the option. And so what we're looking at now, for example, in the last few months, it's been suggested that we're actually at peak population in China. You know, you always hear about this huge population growth in China. And then China introduced the one child policy back in 1979, which was very effective. But you also had high economic growth, which is, I think, even more effective. If you can have high economic growth, you don't necessarily need to have a large number of people in the country. Mm. You have a large population, because the assumption is that some of your babies will die standard example is Queen Anne, who had 13, if you remember that recent movie, all of whom died and created a constitutional crisis. But now, with improved medicine, parents can see their children growing up. And if you have a situation where children can bury their parents rather than parents burying their children, then populations will start to, to balance out. And that's certainly what we're seeing in China at the moment. And the problem for China is that they're going to be running out of young workers So at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are living well beyond their three score and ten years, which Mm -hmm. is the figure used in the Bible. And you've got people who are now, it's interesting in the United States, the equivalent of our program, Sunrise, the Americans announce who's turning 100 today. Right. And so many Americans are turning 100 today that you've got to be 105 (laughs) before your name is read out on American television. So it's really quite fascinating to see how people are managing to live longer, although, of course, COVID is really affecting the statistics because of the large number who have died. Although I come across some demographers who say, well, COVID is only killing off the older people, so they're beyond their working years anyway. So that's actually good news. So mm. they're thinning the ranks of people who are just a burden on the taxpayer.
0: That was one of my questions, actually, because Laurent, in his prediction, he's of, of the, the demographer's prediction, he doesn't actually think COVID will have any long-term impacts on these trends of growth slowing down. And so that's one of the reasons, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah. So people will be able to um, continue to work, mm. even if, they, if the older people just die out. It's not an argument that I accept but it's an argument that you do get from younger people that older people are just a burden on the taxpayer. Mm. Now, I don't accept that point of view. The second largest provider of childcare in Australia are grandparents.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) So um, We need them. We need them, absolutely. But they're not paid. No. And that's why they don't show up in the official statistics. Their pensions show up in the official statistics, but not the contribution which they make to preserving the family structure Mm. because there's no cash transaction. No, there's not. My advice to grandparents, if you want to appear (laughs) in the government statistics, start charging for your services. Don't Mm.
0: say that. I don't want to have to pay my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I wanted to look ahead with Laurent's predictions. So basically he's saying that we're going to kind of see a stabilisation over the next 10 years and then growth's over as regular citizens, how will that impact us?
1: Well, we will. We are noticing it, of course, at the moment because we've shut the national boundaries for the best part of two years. Mm. And everywhere you go, you've got notices. Even here in, in the centre of Sydney, you've got notices on cafe windows, et cetera, help wanted. Yes. So we are running out of the young people who could be doing that work. So that is certainly one way. This is an issue that will creep up on you. Remember, we were being traumatised by Malthus, Talking about the, 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 we're all doomed. Mm-hmm. And then we get this transition in the recent decades. And a lot of people, political commentators particularly, have been slow to catch on to the fact that the population bomb has now been diffused and that you're going to be hearing more and more calls about the fact that we need to have younger people in this country. But it's interesting. One of the things that uh, Laurent uh, covers is Singapore. Uh which has got zero population growth of its own population. It's having to bring in Mm. migrant workers. So they've created what's called a love boat system. So they bring together male and female, young Singaporeans, young lawyers, young doctors, put them out on a love boat around (laughs) Singapore, hope they're going to fall in love and get married. But many of those young people are saying, no, we don't want to get married. Mm. We're certainly not going to have children. They're a financial liability. And so we're seeing a major change in Asia because traditionally... People get married and then they take care of their parents. That's usually the wife's job. In China, for example, we've seen many families buying cars for their sons. Mm -hmm. In the United States, 90% of cars that are sold are sold to people who've already owned a car and they're just upgrading their car. In China, 90% of the cars that are being sold are being sold to people who've never owned a car before. Right. So what's going on here? The parents are buying a car to make their son even more attractive in terms of the selection of women out there. Remember, there's a shortage of women in China. Yes. Thanks to the one-child policy. And so the reasoning is that if they have a son with a flashy car, (laughs) he will have a greater choice of women because those women, his wife, one of them, will be looking after you In your old age.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, it all makes sense. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, we've spoken a bit about some of the other countries, but Laurent's broken down his forecast into kind of separate Mm. regions. And as you like to call it, the weird world, Keith, how is it likely to fare into 2030 and beyond?
1: Well, he's actually quite optimistic about the weird world. So weird is Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. And, for example, he looks at what's going on in Asia and talks about Japan, Taiwan, and Australia. Now, these three countries, Japan, Taiwan, Australia, are only about 14% of the world's population, and yet they do account for a very significant proportion of global consumption. Mm. Now, the argument is that eventually the people, as they get older, will consume less because they've got less money to spend on consumption. But in, the, in this region of Asia, they are the three major drivers And, of course, the worry is China may grow old before it grows rich. The phrase that I've come across is that in the Western countries, like Japan and Australia, people were able to develop a welfare state when the country was rich. Mm -hmm. China is trying to develop a welfare state and the country is not rich. It's a bit like building an aircraft while you're flying it. Right. That's the analogy which is being used. So although we hear all these talks about the power of China, et cetera, then there may be a disadvantage. The Chinese economy may not be as strong as some people have identified.
0: This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. This week we're looking at whether we're coming to the end of the world's relentless growth cycle. We were just looking at the affluent West and other countries that fit into that weird world acronym. What's the forecast for what Laurent calls the older but less affluent regions of Eastern Europe?
1: Yeah, so this is um, an interesting thing. He actually, I should say that the interviews on which this is based took place last year, so it's before the violence in Ukraine, the Mm. Russian invasion of Ukraine. But he was foreshadowing perhaps improvements in Eastern Europe, Mm. very slow economic growth, but certainly he thinks that they will be. And, of course, you do see the the trickle of wealth moving east, you know, moving from Germany across the border into Czechoslovakia and Poland.
0: He's also looked at Brazil, India and Indonesia and, separately, Africa. Can you talk us through some of the predictions he's seeing there in terms of growth?
1: I think he's fairly pessimistic about some of these other countries that, you know, the Indians are going to take a while to come on stream, Okay, They've got young populations, but the education is not coming up to what is required for people to uh, to leave. The technical term is capital formation. And so you need to have the investment, et cetera, for India. And similarly, he's, I think, fairly pessimistic about Brazil and Indonesia. It's going to take a while for them to build up, but they obviously are growing in the right way.
0: And Africa, we've spoken about before in terms of the changes that we're seeing in the population growth there. Can you talk us through that?
1: Yeah, so um, Africa eventually will be a rich continent, but it's going to take an awfully long time to get there. We have all the conflicts that are underway in Africa at the moment. But you do see some interesting innovations. Uh, my favourite one is mobile money. Mm. That They have leapt over the era of having bank branches. Yeah. They have leapt over the era of a network of telephone lines, and so you do everything on mobile phones. So they're actually able to benefit from improvements in technology.
0: You know, we hear so much, particularly, and you touched on it earlier with the climate argument that we can't keep having so many kids because we're going to destroy the earth. Listening to this and listening to Laurent's predictions, it sounds like maybe that's not as big of a concern as we thought it would be. Is that fair?
1: Well, he does foreshadow, of course, the mass movement of people north into Mm. Europe. And that's the worrying development. It's more difficult, obviously, to get down to Australia, despite what politicians are saying. We are surrounded by a giant moat. Mm. But in Europe, you can make it across the Mediterranean or by land, as we saw with a million Syrians seven years ago. So that is an issue that he's warning us about. And I think when you look at the world, you can see a number of oases of wealth in an ocean of squalor. Mm -hmm. Obviously, North America, the United States and Canada, Western Europe, and the United Kingdom, Japan, Australia, New Zealand—they are they are the oases of wealth. But you've also got a huge amount of squalor, yeah. where economic development has taken an awfully long time to come into being. And so he's foreshadowing a much larger movement of people. And one of the interesting statistics is that ten percent of the Greek population now live in Germany.
0: Yeah, right. So they,
1: So they moved there with with the financial crisis a decade ago. The children are now being born in Germany. So the youngsters don't have a country to go back to because they only ever know Germany. Right. And so that's how you do get this change Mm. in migration, that people arrive, they have children, they settle down, and the children don't want to return to original places. Well, they would say, I am German. Yeah, they found a new home. Exactly.
0: A recurring topic that's discussed that I found really interesting in this interview was about education. I guess I didn't realise how big of a role education Mm. plays in growth. Can you break down some
1: of those ideas for us? Absolutely. So education is crucial because we're moving into an increasingly knowledge-based economy. You know, just the way in which we have to operate these programs. For example, you need technical skills in how you get the microphones to work, et cetera. Mm. Very different from the old days, when you would have just been, I don't know, ploughing the fields or something, you'd obviously need to have a knowledge of farming. But even when you go onto a modern-day farm, and I'm privileged enough to do that from time to time, you can see how much IT is changing, what's going on, including now drones that actually sweep across the top of, of plants just looking for insects, et, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. It's a whole new world that's opening up. I mean, it's knowledge-based. Mm. It's not brute force. You needed muscle in the old days. And then we ended up with uh, machines coming along in 1750, the Industrial Revolution, which transformed societies as they modernized. But now we're moving away from that. So machines will be able to do all the thinking for you. And, of course, this is the issue of artificial intelligence, which we've looked at quite often. Mm. So if you want to have a role for yourself in the future, you either go upmarket, and so you concentrate on getting a lot of education, or you concentrate in the service economy. I think we're a long way from computers cutting hair, for example. I hope so. At the University of Western Australia, there was an experiment for robots to cut the sheep's fleece. Mm -hmm. But tragically, a lot of the sheep did get damaged. I'm not sure how, this was 30 years ago, I'm not sure how (laughs) that experiment worked out. Um, So, you know, there are areas for which the human hand performs better than um, a robot could ever do, but those examples are shrinking. Mm. A bit. We see the way in which computers are now aiding even brain surgeons because if you've got really finicky brain surgery, then the the computer might actually be a better cutting tool for you. From a, a point of view of education, you've either got to become highly educated with a love of learning. The problem is our schools are so woefully out of date in terms of what they teach. So we need a whole new approach to learning. And at the same time, we need to have people who can be trained to work in the service sector, cutting their hair, putting cups and saucers on cafe tables, mm. etc. And for that, you need a good service mentality. So I don't want to demean the people who are doing the, the work as wait persons. A great story here is from Russia that the big problem when McDonald's moved into Russia was how to get Russians to smile at their <laughs> customers. I travelled a lot <laughs> behind the Iron Curtain in the old days. Oh, God. And everybody is so surly and unpleasant. Yeah. and They're going to get paid anyway. They're true. not interested. Yeah, yep, that's they're true. They're going to get paid, whether they, they are of assistance to you or not. And then McDonald's arrived and realised it had a real problem. You know, this bright, cheery person has got to be invented now <laughs> in, in Russia. But this it comes back to the issue of customer relations. Mm. So even when I say that, we're gonna have to concentrate more on the delivery of services, et cetera. You've still got to have good training because you want that customer to come back to you. Yeah, that's right. And not be so offended that they're not (laughs) gonna buy another one of your hamburgers. So it's a whole new world. Education is a key factor in one way or another, in that new world.
0: Yeah. And I guess to sum us up, Keith, you know, what does this mean for the average person out there looking ahead to their future over the next 20, 30 years? What are we going to see?
1: Laurent says he prefers to deal with only 15 years. Sorry. It, in terms of trends. <laughs> so he is actually looking at a new type of economy that's that's coming up. You know, he calls it the death of growth mm. because of the environmental consequences of the economic Growth, but we've, we've nonetheless got to find ways of keeping people employed. Well, thank you very much, Keith,
0: for those wonderful insights. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez, theme and original music by Matt Nicolich. Listener,